Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Dr. Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the Kent Surrey Sussex Deanery. And this is a podcast about general medicine in association with the education department at the Royal College of Physicians. The aim of this podcast is to demystify medicine, recap and clarify general medical topics, and also cover some interesting historical facts along the way. This episode is going to focus on pneumonia, something that we all see particularly with increasing frequency around wintertime and the winter crisis. Now, there are two main guidelines used for the management of pneumonia. The British Thoracic Society guidelines published in 2009, which mainly focuses on community-acquired pneumonia, and the NICE guidance published in 2014, which looks at community-acquired pneumonia and hospital-acquired pneumonia. And throughout the podcast, we'll be looking at both of these guidelines. I'm going to start with a case. Are you ready? So, Mr. Buckthorn, he's a 77-year-old man who has been unwell for a few days. He's off his food, he's not sleeping very well. He has a cough, productive of green sputum, and he feels pretty short of breath when he's walking around the house. He aches all over and he just feels rubbish. He has a past medical history of hypertension. He had a non-STEMI in 2014 and he has high cholesterol. He takes aspirin and simvastatin, 40 milligrams at night, as well as amlodipine for the high blood pressure. Apart from that, nothing else of note. He's an ex-smoker and gave up smoking five years ago with a 40-pack year history. On examination, he looks pretty ill, feels very warm to touch. His airway is patent. He's chatting to you, although his voice sounds hoarse and he just just feels weak. Breathing-wise, his respiratory rate is 20. His saturations are 94% on air. His blood pressure is 145 over 98. Capillary refill time is less than two seconds. His pulse is 96 beats per minute, and he has a temperature of 38.1. Nothing else significant in circulatory examination. However, when you listen to his chest, you feel that there are a few creps at the left base. Nothing else of note. So you go to see him as the medical registrar and call. Any other questions you want to ask? Or yeah, so that's quite a, a thorough history that we can get stuck into. So obviously he's got a respiratory complaint. He's got a productive cough of green sputum. He's a little bit breathless, feeling a bit achy. He's off his food. Um, he's got a temperature on examination. Saturations are a little bit low. Um, but he's an ex-smoker. Does he have an underlying airways disease, some bronchitis perhaps. That's a good thought. Um, but given his age and his symptoms, you know, he's, he's got an infection that needs treatment and, and certainly some further investigation. Um, I suppose, you know, the common things, you know, how long has this been going on for? Any other contacts that he's been um, in touch with? Has he had infections before? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been getting for a couple of days. Um, he's been in bed for a couple of days. Um, he hasn't really had contact with anybody else who's been unwell. And he's not known to have an underlying respiratory disease, such as COPD, but it is obviously always a possibility. Yeah. Um, and obviously the examination findings. So you, you said he had some crackles, um, which would probably be consistent with a pneumonia clinically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely want to correlate this with a chest X-ray. 
Okay, so what investigations are you going to do then? Uh, so how are you going to start? What at the bedside? You've got Mr. Buckthorn in front of you. What do you want to do? Uh, so obviously we've done all the usual parameters, blood pressure, SATs, etc. Um, I think his saturations are okay at the moment, so we could avoid a blood gas. But obviously if it was dropped a little bit lower, mm -hmm. um, I would push for one. Um, do some routine blood tests, so FBCs, look at his white cell count. Uh, look at his HB, make sure he's not tired because of anemia. Uh, look at his user knees, is he dehydrated if he's been bed bound the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. uh, his CRP, uh, other things like liver function tests. Um, you mentioned he's uh, got high cholesterol as well. Just make sure there's no other causes of his lethargy. Because um, I think the thing is with ex-smokers, their chests normally can sound a little bit rattly anyway. Okay, yeah. Um, so true. I want to make sure that I'm not missing anything and not just focusing too much on this potential pneumonia. Um, if he's productive, I'd like to send off some sputum as well. Okay. Uh, he's pyrexial, so some blood cultures. Uh, again, urine dip uh, and obviously a chest x-ray as well. Okay. What about a lactate? Um... Possibly, I think if, if I was worried I was really unwell, yes, I think that would that would be a marker that I could use. Mm -hmm. um, but it wouldn't be something that I would jump into straight away unless I felt the need to do a blood gas. Okay. So you mentioned that you're going to do some um, blood cultures. Yep, yeah, absolutely. He's got a high temperature, reasonable. And you mentioned some sputum cultures as well. So what sort of things might grow in his sputum? What sort of bugs are you looking for? Um, so the things that... I commonly look for, so streptococcus, uh, haemophilus, uh, moraxella. Mm -hmm. um, again, if they've got existing lung disease, things like pseudomonas. Again, that's kind of the typical green sputum uh, thing that you look out for. Yeah. Um, mainly bacterial causes, basically. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, TB, you want to rule that out in both history, so AFB if you're concerned. Mm -hmm. um, Any other causative agents you're thinking about? Um, well, from the history, because of the, the sore throat, hoarse voice, achy, I suppose you also want to consider maybe a viral. Yeah, I'm thinking more along the lines of um, Legionella. Yeah. In the urine, potentially. So um, if he's been in, in an at-risk group or it's a year where we've seen lots of Legionella, it might be worth checking um, Legionella urinary antigen. Yeah. Um, pneumococcal. Yeah. Um, mycoplasma, chlamydia. I mean, these are obviously more further on down the line of... Uh, commonness but it's always worth thinking about yeah. and having at the back of your mind yeah okay so you've done your blood tests and your white cell counts elevated at 14 you've got a mild neutrophilia at around 11 you've got a urea of nine but apart from that the rest of his kidney functions fine liver's absolutely fine crp is elevated at 78 yeah. um and you've done a chest x-ray and yeah it shows an area of consolidation consistent with the position of the crepitations on examination. Yeah. So you think you've got pneumonia? Yeah. Absolutely. What scoring tool are you going to use? Mm, so the most common one is the CURB 65 score. Okay, so what does that look at? Um, so I've always interpreted it as looking at mortality uh, mm -hmm. following a pneumonia episode. So obviously those who have a CURB score that's high uh, are at significantly increased risk of uh, mortality following the pneumonia episode. Um, if they're low risk or score zero, uh, then they have low mortality and are probably likely to be able to be managed on oral antibiotics and early discharge. So what what's the CURB 65 score made up of? Uh, so C is for confusion. So you want to do an abbreviated mental test score or you know another appropriate test depending on your trust. 
uh, urea, which you've mentioned, uh, respiratory rate, blood pressure, and their age. So this gentleman already scores one because he's 77. Yep. And we mentioned urea. His was nine, and it's anything over seven millimoles per litre. Respiratory rate is 30 breaths or more, which his wasn't actually, and low blood pressure of diastolic of 60 or less and a systolic of 90 or less. So his wasn't, but he's still scoring on his age and his urea. So he scores two. So that makes him intermediate risk. And you're right, CURB 65, when it's correctly used, is used for mortality risk. So zero to one, less than 3% mortality. Two, three to 15% mortality risk. And three to five is more than 15% mortality risk. So actually, pneumonia's got a significant mortality associated with it. However, this has now been extrapolated and we can look at the severity of pneumonia by using the CURB score. And like you said, zero or one is home-based treatment. If their score's two or more, think about hospital. If it's three, think about intensive care. So it's a really good way of thinking about how you're going to treat him. Okay, so Mr. Buckthorn, he's got a CURB of two. You've got a chest X-ray diagnosis of pneumonia. So how are you going to treat him? Uh, so I would want to start some antibiotics um so i know again the trusts vary in their guidance but you want to start with something broad so things like amoxicillin um you can consider adding a macrolide um like clarithromycin if the scores um yeah two two or above mm-hmm. um make sure he's hydrated get if he's been you know not eating and drinking or he's you know been bed bound recently um want to make sure he's uh, got enough nutrition going in mm-hmm. um Yeah, that's about it, I suppose, and and wait for the treatment to take effect. The um, BTS guidelines are very clear on saying that the diagnosis of pneumonia should be confirmed before you start antibiotics in hospital, which often isn't the case, and patients are often very aggressively treated with intravenous antibiotics for pneumonia that they may or may not have. So it's just a bit of food for thought there, actually. Um, they also state that um, antibiotic-wise, as you rightly suggested, should be amoxicillin. is a good oral choice. Um, and if it's a low severity, um, oral antibiotics are actually fine. So you don't need to go straight for the IV. Um, and like you say, you can consider dual therapy if it's moderate to severe. And obviously, if they're allergic to a penicillin, think about your macrolide treatment. Yeah. Um, if it's moderate and high severity, you probably want a longer course of antibiotics as well. So seven to 10 days. Um, and particularly if they are high risk, you probably want to go straight for intravenous antibiotics. And again, the same antibiotic coverage with amoxicillin and a macrolide, such as clarithromycin or erythromycin can be effective. If you haven't had much success with those type of antibiotics, then you could think about adding in um, coamoxiclav instead of amoxicillin. So you're adding in an additional agent. Um, and again, doxycycline is an option, levofloxacin, moxifloxacin. These are all different antibiotics that are used for pneumonias, but it's obviously always worth checking with your local guidelines. Okay, so this guy is on a statin. Yep. And you want to prescribe in a macrolide. Mm, you want to stop the statin okay, uh, yeah. whilst, he, whilst he's on the treatment. Why? Yeah. Uh, so there is a known drug interaction um, between the two. Uh, I'm sure you can enlighten us on the physiology and pharmacology of that. <laughs> well, all we need to know is that um, when you take a macrolide and a statin together, it increases the risk of rhabdomyolysis. And because of this, you can develop acute kidney injury. 
So I know that I've certainly saw lots of drug charts in hospitals where the in green pen written by the pharmacist is, I would advise stopping the um, statin while you're on medication. So it's really, really worth remembering that. And um, I think exacerbated by the fact this chap's not been eating or drinking anyway, perhaps. So it's, yeah, very pertinent. Definitely. And there was an interesting paper in um, clinical medicine in 2017 by Grzynski et al. And this actually looked at statins as a beneficial effect in pneumonia. Now, it's thought that statins have an immunomodulatory effect on the immune system. Again, nobody's not entirely sure why or how that happens. But it found that statin users were more likely to survive admission with a statin than those who weren't statin users. So this was even taken into the fact that statin users had confounding factors of diabetes, high cholesterol and um, heart disease, they still had a better survival rate. So I think they spent a watch this space area. Would you give steroids? Uh, with this gentleman, I would not. Um, I can't see an indication for one. Okay, unless I guess they've got chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and he's got an exacerbation of that, yeah. And the guideline again says, don't give steroids. Okay, so um, when would you be happy to send this man home? Um, I think you'd, you'd review it on a sort of daily, half-daily basis. So depending on what he can function at, uh, his clinical response, um, rather than any time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he's not dependent on anything that keeps him in hospital, such as IV fluids, oxygen, whatever, uh, and he's mobile and happy to go home, then, you know, anecdotally, these kind of cases always find maybe a f- couple of days. Yeah, yeah, about 24, 48 hours. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's quite clear that um, don't discharge if in the last 24 hours they've had a temperature higher than 37.5 degrees, Respirate more than 24, they're tachycardic at more than 100, systolic blood pressure less than 90, they can't eat very well. Basically, they have an abnormal mental status and their oxygen status less than 90. So again, it's common sense, isn't it? These patients are reviewed every day. If they look ill, they're not well enough to go home. Now, back to Mr. Buckthorn, he's still unwell. So he's had, he's been in for 24, 48 hours. He's had the um, antibiotics, but he's not very well and he's still pyrexial. To be honest, he looks pretty awful. And you're getting worried now because he's not getting any better. Any thoughts? Um, so I'll think whether we've actually got him on the right antibiotics. So mm. we'll be very vigilant for culture results, maybe resending uh, some tests such as blood culture sputum. Yeah. Um, I'd be worried, so putting my respiratory hat on, whether he's got a paraneumonic effusion uh, or an empyema perhaps. So I want to get some imaging. Um, yeah, or, or just, you know, are we treating the wrong bugs here? Mm. Or is it a bug? What else could it be? Could it be a virus? Yeah, okay. So it's coming into winter. What sort of things are we? do we see a lot of, particularly last winter? Yeah, so flu. The flu, absolutely. Um, he could have the flu, couldn't he? So it's always worth thinking about. Um, a little bit about the flu. So we know it's a virus, as you rightly said. There are four types of flu, A, B, C and D, but only A and B tend to cause clinical symptomatology, often A being the worst. Most common incubation period is around one to three days. 
patient just normally feels terrible, fever, chills, myalgia, headache, very tired, bit of a cough, sore throat, blocked nose. The cough is often dry unless they have a superimposed bacterial infection. And it sounds like possibly, maybe, Mr Buckthorn had the flu, has the flu, and has a superimposed bacterial infection. Um, can get quite complicated, significant complications of the flu. Pneumonias, as we've said, bronchitis, rarely meningitis. So really have to be on the ball and thinking about flu, particularly if they have coexisting cardiac and respiratory disease, which Mr. Buckthorn had. Okay, you think he's got the flu. What do you do? Uh, so you want evidence. So you want to um, send some swabs, mm-hmm. uh, some yeah, throat swabs uh, to test for the virus. Or nasal swabs. Or nasal swabs. Depending yeah. on trust, yeah. Yeah. Um, ideally, and anecdotally, these are always done on admission anyway. <laughs> particularly around winter time, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I suppose you want to sort of give him the support of treatment. So yeah, again, make sure he's hydrated, making sure he's, uh, you know, well rested and, and, and not pushing himself too hard. And, you know, thinking about the flu and how we diagnose it, Often the diagnosis of the flu is clinical. So particularly this year when we saw hundreds of people with a flu in a hospital, it was very difficult to do tests on every single patient that you come through the door. So often it's clinical. The reason for diagnosing the flu is actually to reduce antibiotic usage. So you don't want to give people necessary antibiotics. And also, if you've got a diagnosis, thinking about antiviral therapy. Um, And also... If it's a, you know, particularly this year was quite bad for flu, it was very good for identifying the circulating strains that were going around. There are huge amounts of options for flu testing, depending on where you work. And um, we've got things like direct immunofluorescence antibody staining, takes about two to four hours to come back. PCR, polymerase chain reaction, is around two to four hours. Serology is about two weeks, so it's not something you're going to be doing uh, very often. And immunoassays of enzymes are at two hours there are rapid diagnostic tests now so in some hospitals you have these tiny little boxes where you do a throat or a nasal swab pop it into this container and it gives you a diagnosis within 15 minutes the drawback from this though is the cost and i think it's around 25 to 30 pounds per test Wow. so it's a lot for the test however this may counteract the fact that you don't have to admit the patient to hospital put them in a side room yeah so i think it's a bit of a cost benefit calculation there that's actually one of my bugbears i suppose is that actually when a test is done for whatever reason sometimes you don't know why Mm -hmm. you may be treating a patient for something else like a gi bleed for instance but they have a test Mm -hmm. of influenza that's come back positive and then it changes everything you know the management bedside management the isolation of the bay you know frequently in you know you have to gown up and everything and it sometimes i find it unusual not unusual but just a little bit annoying somehow that you've, you've been- it is, yeah. you almost feel like it's overkill yeah because it's only the flu but actually the flu can be devastating and we know that it's very very virulent and that it spreads rapidly so when you're in a hospital although it's frustrating and time consuming actually the flu the hospitals are full of patients who are immunocompromised and ill 
Therefore, it's really important that we do adhere to these infection control issues, however frustrating they may be. How are you going to manage it, the flu? So you said supportive. Yeah. What about antivirals? Would you use any? Um, so I think it, it depends on the context. So, yeah, if they're immunocompromised, you know, say on, on chemotherapy or, or whatever, then I would probably veer on the side of caution and start antiviral treatment. Yeah. Um, but if they're not of that kind, so not immunocompromised, uh, not having any severe alternative illnesses, um, I would think they won't necessitate uh, antivirals. Yeah, and that's pretty much how the Public Health England stands as well. So they published a paper in 2014. The only drugs licensed for treatment of flu is oseltamivir, Tamiflu, it's about £20, and Sanamivir or Relenza, which is about £25. There is very conflicting advice regarding the use of antivirals. There's been papers in The Lancet, which by Mathuri et al., which looked at the effectiveness of these neuroaminidase inhibitors. And there's also been a Cochrane review in 2014. Um, again, uh, this was by Jefferson et al., looking at these use of these medications. So the Lancet said that among patients aged over 16, treatment with antivirals is associated with a 25% reduction in death compared with no antiviral treatment. So that's pretty significant. And early treatment within 48 hours of the illness half the risk of death compared with no antiviral treatment. However, the Cochrane Review didn't find the same evidence. So Public Health England statement says that because they can be of benefit, they still continue to support the use of the medication with proven or suspected flu in high-risk groups. High-risk groups are chronic respiratory disease, heart, renal, liver disease, neurological conditions, pregnant women, other immunocompromised, absolutely use it. All those who are unwell, particularly if they're hospitalised. Um, and again, the World Health Organisation agrees with that statement. What it doesn't say is that if you have the flu, you come into hospital, you know, you're diagnosed in the ambulatory care setting, you can go home and you don't necessarily, if you're not in a high-risk group, have to take antivirals. And that's exactly what you said. Because again, all drugs come with side effects. Yeah. Particularly Tamiflu, diarrhea and vomiting and the gastro side effects can make the flu sometimes you make you feel a bit worse so yeah. bear in mind and i think that's a really key point you made that a lot of these patients possibly will be seen in ambulatory care with the acute medical unit first yes absolutely if, if you're thinking about flu the key is probably get them home yeah. <laughs> don't let them linger yeah and also it highlights the importance that as healthcare professionals we should get vaccinated because think of how much flu we get surrounded by every day in the winter it's a huge amount so you know Call to everybody out there who hasn't had their flu vaccination. Think about getting it done. Grin and bear it. Grin and bear it. And it's not that bad this year. And I got given a sweet. I had it. So what I was also quite um, interested to find out was that there's a weekly national flu report. Wow. So you can figure out exactly where the flu's been reported, who's got the flu. Um, and interestingly, every year they look at boarding schools because boarding schools obviously they live in close proximity to each other so there's like a boarding school reporting system where there's been a very good font of knowledge about the flu and how it transmits mm -hmm. okay so you've given you've decided to give mr buckthorn tammy flu now he's in a ward with about 20 other people are you worried 
do they need Tamiflu as well? I'd say no. Um, as you said earlier, it's kind of a clinical diagnosis. So I wouldn't want to go around testing everyone for the sake of it. I would only kind of be extra vigilant for flu-like symptoms. Um, I mean, you'd obviously want to isolate him of so course. he doesn't, doesn't infect other people. But um, I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't want to be investigating every single person that he's come across. No, and certainly you wouldn't go probably and nasal swab everybody or throat swab everybody. However, I know that in some trusts and some infection control um, departments um, that if they've been exposed to flu, that everybody actually gets management of the flu. So wow. Yeah, so so many wards I were on last year when somebody had the flu, therefore the whole bay got Tamiflu. So always discuss with your local microbiologist or virologist for advice. Yeah, I suppose it's that proactive approach, isn't it? Prevent Absolutely. Before. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So a little bit of information about the Spanish flu. Now, do you know why the Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu? I don't. So the 1918 flu pandemic basically um, led to around a third of the world's population being affected so it's massive and the reason it was called the spanish flu was not because it originated in spain but because we were in the first world war and in 1918 spain remained neutral and therefore they freely reported during the um, war about news however america the uk and other countries in the war didn't report so they hid their fact that they were seeing lots of flu because it made them seem vulnerable so Spain were the first person to report the flu pandemic, even though it was global. Right. Mm. And it occurred pretty much during the First World War, and it was made worse because everybody lived in close quarters. And these massive troop movements of huge amounts of people moving spread the disease. Right. So it actually helped spread transmission. And it was called Le Grip amongst soldiers. I see. Mm. And if they were well, they got better in one to two days, but actually huge amounts of people did die. So not to do with Spain. I, no. was, I was thinking the lines of things like Spanish chorizo and swine flu. But no, no. <laughs> nothing. It was just because of where it was first reported. Um, it was most severe in those aged 20 to 30. And more people died of the Spanish flu than died of the plague. Wow. Which I found That's very interesting. just shows how devastating influenza can be. Absolutely. Yeah. And it just shows how important we must take the risk of influenza particularly to those at risk patients and also highlights that we should probably all get vaccinated against the flu okay so key learning points from today then give me three uh so it's just nice to recap uh things about pneumonia uh symptoms wise antibiotic policy uh curb score uh, don't forget the statin so if they're on a macrolide mm -hmm. make sure you cross off the statin um the sort of interesting things about flu and what happens on the shop floor. So why we isolate people, why we have to take these precautions because it is highly virulent. Mm -hmm. um, and I've learnt uh, about the Spanish flu. So thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.